I still look at every single legal agreement today. You know, the boys say very visionary, very business oriented, but when it comes down to the fine print, um, you know, uh, we've got to, you know, you've really got to focus on that. And um, again, you know, entrepreneurs tend to, you know, put a lot of trust in people, a lot of stock uh, in people, and, you know, they sign on the dotted line. It's, uh, I've seen it a lot. And, um, you know, you have to get folks who are disciplined in there. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. This podcast is about conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. Businesses and entrepreneurs that we can all identify with. In each episode, I think we try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses. So we decided to interview a wide range of business people that have found and taken unconventional paths in their careers. And what we hope to do is capture some lessons, advice, inspiration that will help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So join us for interesting conversations and discussions with what we think are really inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled unconventional paths that lie ahead. So if you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a review on your favorite podcasting application. If you have suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome back to the Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. And I am Mike Wasserman, and I'm here with my tag team partner, Bela Musitz, uh, the Ray Professor of Innovation Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. Uh, and I'm a professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. Bela, today we have a really interesting guest, Mitch Hara, who's the CEO of Beekman 1802, which maybe not a lot of our listeners will have heard of, but I think after today's interview, People will go check this company out because it's really a fascinating startup. Just a reminder that along the way here, we've done a few live interviews uh, as part of our podcast series. Uh, this is one of those live interviews that was conducted at the New York Biz Lab event that Clarkson uh, holds monthly in Schenectady, of which Bela is a co-host. And so there's a little more background noise and the sound quality might not be as good, but we think that it's worth it. So Bela. Tell me a little bit about what's been going on in your world the last week or two since we've last spoken. So, Mike, you know, I think this um, this interview with Mitch uh, really uh, put a point on some conversations I've been having with uh, with some folks about innovation. And, you know, when you're part of a technological university uh, that is uh, predominantly engineering and science related, when people think about innovation, they often think about inventing some new mechanism or device or new material. And that's what they tie innovation to. And I was also having a conversation with a, a fellow faculty member uh, who actually uh, has been teaching innovation for many, many years. And he's, he brought some great perspective 
to me because, by the way, I am an engineer, so I have a, a little bit of that bias of thinking that innovation means you need to invent something new. Um, I love you anyways, Bela, by the way, in spite <laughs> of you're an engineer, but yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he's actually this uh, fellow faculty member I was speaking to is actually a psychology uh, major. And uh, he really opened my eyes that innovation is much broader than just technology. It's helping to develop something that fulfills a need uh, out in the world in some form or fashion. And, you know, you think about companies like Uber or Amazon, they, they use technology, but they're really not technology-based companies. And I thought that uh, interview with Mitch and the Beekman 1802, which is the company that he is CEO at, is really a great example of this. It's, it's much more about, uh, I think as Mitch calls it, a living brand. It's about selling a particular uh, lifestyle uh, to your customers. And I think that it really helped for me uh, sort of understand this notion of what innovation can be. And it's much broader than just technology. Agreed. And I think uh, the listeners will quickly realize that this startup is a little bit different than a traditional startup in a lot of different ways. Um, so there's a lot here to learn, I think, from Mitch about uh, this company and about his path. So I think let's get to it and roll the interview. Perfect, Mike. And uh, again, we'd like to thank uh, Clarkson University and Munster in Germany for their support. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can reach us at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, please leave us a favorable review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting system. Now, let's get on. You're getting really good at that part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm trying. Do, do we have any, I do we have any reviews on iTunes yet? Uh, not yet. I haven't seen any. I think there's a minimum threshold uh, that they they want to collect before they uh, post any of them. So uh, The challenge is there. You're laying down the gauntlet. Yes, the challenge is there. Please give us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and let's... Let's listen to Mitch. Okay, let's go. So Mitch Hara, who's CEO of Beekman 1802, they have two locations, one here in Schenectady and one in Sharon Springs, New York. Does anyone know where Sharon Springs, New York is? Out west of here, I think. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's Kahari County. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they have two locations. And uh, so I thought I'd start off by asking Mitch to tell us a little bit about Beekman 1802, what it does, what your products are, sort of how it started. Just a little bit of history. Sure. Well, first I want to thank Rick uh, Baylor for having me. Happy to be here for Lucky Number 13. Um, So Beekman 1802 uh, is a living brand. That's how we refer to ourselves, not to be confused with a lifestyle brand, but a living brand. And it's a living brand because it's really a natural extension of the co-founders, my partners, Brent Ridge and Josh Kilmer Purcell. It's an extension of their lifestyles as gentlemen farmers and adventurers. And this is a business that was started in, uh, as Baylor points out, Spahari County in Sharon Springs. Boys bought uh, the Beekman Mansion, which was built in 1802, just at the peak of the real estate market, and then both lost their jobs in the recession. So this was a business that was born out of the recession. Um, They both lost their jobs, as I said, and they had to find a way to pay this million dollar mortgage. Uh, And so they took on a goat farmer 
and decided if they were all going to live happily together, they'd have to find a way to make money from goat's milk. So they Googled what you can do with it, and it came up that you could make soap and you can make cheese. So that's what they did. Um, the rest is history. The business is primarily a beauty, food, and home business. It is artisan-inspired. We do a, bit, a lot of business with a lot of small artisans. Since the business was built uh, with the help of our neighbors in Sharon Springs, we've kept that neighborly um, uh, philosophy as we've grown the business. We refer to our customers as neighbors, um, and we do a lot of business with artisans uh, throughout the capital region, throughout the United States, and we do a lot of business with companies here in Schenectady as well. Um, if I were to give you an analogy as to what the business does, it's Burt's Bees meets Stonewall Kitchen meets Martha Stewart, and you can add Abercrombie and Kent to that too, uh, because now we are uh, doing a lot of exotic trips around the world. Um, the business uh, focuses on content uh, and community, which leads to commerce. Uh, we're not necessarily about selling products, we're about uh, having our neighbors cultivate a better life, which is one of our taglines. Um, and so by virtue of the content we produce, the community we foster, and the products we produce, we want to give all of our neighbors a great experience. Um, and whether it's products or whether it's our events, whether it's the boys' appearances uh, or the exotic trips around the world, which we do. We just did one to Peru, and we're doing one to, into the snow forest for December, which will take uh, everyone into the uh, markets of Europe, uh, Prague and Salzburg uh, and the like. And so. Uh, it's a very, very um, unique company, again, um, with a unique spin of content, community, and commerce. Hope that explains it. I think that was great, Mitch. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? I mean, Rich told us where you went to school, and he said a few words about it, but sort of what prepared you to sort of come to Schenectady from the big city yeah. you know, and undertake something like this? So uh, I spent most of my career in New York City as an investment banker to the retail and consumer products uh, industries. And I've uh, had exposure and experience with all kinds of retail and consumer brands from, uh, you know, startups to growth to static, mature to bankrupt. Um, and so I've seen it all out there, done all kinds of transactions. Um, that uh, career at Wall Street took me to a, form, a client of my former firm which was HSNI, or what used to be HSN Inc., before it was acquired by Curate Retail recently, which is Liberty Media and QVC. Uh, HSN was the second largest, still is the second largest TV uh, home shopping network. Uh, it's also a billion dollar catalog brand, which not all people know about, Cornerstone Brands. Uh, and so I spent four years there um, uh, as head of corporate strategy and M&A, uh, which was basically helping the company build uh, value and create value uh, through not only the capital structure and our strategy, but also through investments and acquisitions in other companies and brands. Uh, I left there after four years. One of the junior members of my team uh, happened to have a family business that produced beauty at scale, a private label uh, business that produced beauty at scale. They were smart enough to take the Beekman 1802 license to produce goat's milk beauty uh, and uh, I had left HSN at the end of 2014. Um, the young fellow who was part of my group ultimately went to Wall Street um, to work and then went back into the family business. And he said, look, you know, this company I'm doing business with, Beekman 1802, probably never heard of them. 
but it's two guys. The business is growing like a weed. Um, and they're at the point now where they need someone to come in and potentially run it and or raise capital. I told them I had to talk to you. So I talked to them. Um, so that was in the summer of 2015. Um, I was talking to a lot of other, you know, uh, companies, bigger companies to go in and do what I did for HSN. But I thought now's the time to do something interesting and, um, entrepreneurial. And the more I got to learn about this company, the more interesting it was, and the more I saw a real brand there. Uh, and so I started as a consultant in 2000, in September of 2015, um, spent three to four months uh, doing the consulting work and then started as uh, CEO in January of 16 to sort of get the house in order and raise capital. So that's how it started. So, so as you think about that journey of starting as a consultant with the company, because you're an outsider, right? Right. You're not one of the two, as you call them, the boys. Yep. Beaten boys. The <laughs> fabulous beaten boys. boys. Yes. So you're not one of the two, right? right? So you're sort of an outsider. So can you talk a little bit about how that relationship evolved and sort of was there a point in time where you guys all looked at each other and said, you know what, you should you should run this place. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know. The boys needed advice. Um, they knew they had something special. They also knew it was getting too big for them. Um, but they, and they also need to raise capital. Uh, and so my credibility initially came from the young fellow who worked for me, whose family business we ultimately bought recently. Um, but uh, my credibility came from there, from my background, um, and from the advice I gave them, which is, look, uh, we need to raise capital, sure, but we need to get the house in order. Uh, we need to put a business plan together, we need to make sure it all ties, it makes sense, and we need some infrastructure. I mean, when I got there, there were 12 people at the company, uh, I think six of whom were full-time, nobody really had titles, you know, six people had emails, there were no meetings, there was no communication, there was nothing. And I didn't want to take a company like that to market, um, knowing what I know about raising capital. And so I said, look, we'll raise capital, it's gonna take a little more time than I think we had originally planned, um, and I can help you get your house in order. And so we all agreed at that point in time that I would come on as CEO and build a, a physical infrastructure as well as an organizational infrastructure, slowly but surely reinvest in the business. When the time was right, go out and raise capital. So, so you know, last month's speaker uh, was uh, very dynamic and he was CEO and he was the face of the company, mm. right? So he was the brand. So talk a little bit about how you, the three of you, you and the boys, kind of uh, figure that out and what roles each of you play and how that works to, you know, keep the brand of the company moving forward and alive and sure. strong. So the Fabulous Beekman boys are very fabulous and they're the ones that get uh, a lot of the branding. They are the brand. Brent and Josh are the brand. Um, and they are the ones that are at the forefront of the company's branding efforts um, and essentially do all the appearances, et cetera, et cetera. This is the first such, I say the second such uh, appearance that I've done. Um, and so they are the creative visionaries um, and they have their hands in everything from brand building to product development to marketing. Um, and where I come in is really uh, strategy and execution. Um, you can have the greatest strategy in the world, but if you can't execute it, it's not much of a strategy. So I come from the school of uh, executions, nine tenths of strategy. Vision is about a tenth of it. Um, and so we have a happy uh, division of focus and labor. 
Um, you know, in terms of, as I said, branding, marketing, strategy, and execution. Although there are a lot of times that, you know, strategy crosses boundaries. Um, and that's where, you know, things get a little dicey at times. Uh, we all want to grow this business into, uh, you know, a lot bigger than it is. Um, we have essentially grown it uh, six times its size since I joined. Uh, and so more than six times, actually. And so, um, you know, it works. So uh, you described a, a pretty broad spectrum of products and services, right? Uh, trips to Peru, I think you said. Uh, yeah. And all sorts of, you know, goat's milk and soap, et cetera. So how do you sort of think about, okay, we're going to offer this product. Someone comes up with an idea, right? Let's start doing uh, exotic tourism trips around the world, right? Should we do that? Should we not do that, right? And then do we have the skill set? and the resources required to pull that off. So can you talk a little bit about how you guys think about that and what that process is like? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, as I said, you know, uh, the brand has many, many facets and categories. Um, when I first got to the company, you know, with my sort of Wall Street uh, mindset, I said, pick a lane. You want to be beauty? You want to be food? You want to be home? It's going to be tough to be all three. Um, because that's sort of the investor mindset, so to speak. Um, and, you know, I learned from them um, that you can be in multiple categories and be successful. So not only is it, am I mixing the Kool-Aid, I'm serving it, um, because you can be in multiple categories as long as they all tie together with a common message. And again, our common message is cultivate a better life. Um, when I got there, um, you know, I heard about this trip to Cuba, uh, that the boys had set up with a, um, uh, you know, a, a trip provider. And it's not just taking people to Cuba to go to the beach. These are roll up your sleeves, experiential trips. And so that particular trip, and it was actually a month before Obama went, so we were trans trendsetters. Um, it was roll up your sleeves, spend a few days living with Cuban families, spend uh, some time uh, working in a Cuban healthcare facility, Spent some time working in Cuban farms uh, to see how the, you know, uh, the tobacco is grown, the cigars are made, uh, artist communities, and then a couple of days at the beach. And so all of our trips, and this is born out of what Brett and Josh want to do with uh, their lifestyles. They want to explore and they want to uh, take adventures and they want to take our best neighbors with them. Um, and we've always said when they built the farm that the farm is going to be bigger than its fences. Um, which it is. And so not only are we doing, uh, you know, work uh, locally in the capital region, but also uh, in New York State, uh, around the country and around the world. Um, and so, um, you know, your, your question was, you know, and that, so that explains the trip portion of it. But um, when new products are brought to the table, there's a lot of ways in which they come. It's either, uh, you know, Brent or Josh or both get a vision. Um, or we've got demands from our neighbors who we are very, very engaged with. Uh, there is tons of postings every day with recommendations. You should do this. You should do that. We'd love to see a product X and Y and Z. Uh, we take that very seriously. Uh, and we also have a lot of product days that come from our business partners and collaborators, of which there are a lot in the capital region. Um, and so, you know, as long as it's on brand, it works. And so when something like that comes up, do, do you like do a business plan for doing that? Or is it more of, you know what, we're going to try one, see how it goes. And if it goes well, 
will will iterate it and make it better than excellent. How, how does that? The answer is yes to all that. Um, so what we've tried to do is bring more in the way of uh, product development discipline to the plate. Um, whereas when I got there, uh, you know, there were about ten new products or twelve new products a year uh, that were uh, you know being developed even more. Um, but uh, a lot of them come from our, you know, it was coming from artisans. Um, not a lot of those products were scalable. And if you want to grow a business, you've got to scale products. And it's great. We want to do artisan uh, businesses and we want uh, products with, with small artisans and small batch producers. And we do. But if we're going to grow the business, we also have to do scalable products. Uh, so now the discipline we look at is, does this product make sense? Um, is it or isn't it scalable? And just because it isn't doesn't mean we won't do it. But if it is, then how do we think about pricing both from a retail and wholesale perspective? Um, and how can we make sure that it meets our criteria? So if anything, we've formalized the process uh, and put more discipline around it. But it, we still have the right to explore inside and out of that. So you spoke a lot about brand and, and how the company really is about brand. And that's very important to, to the company. Is, is there a, a brand or two that you guys sort of look up to and say, those guys are sort of our, I won't use the word idols, but you know, we, we sort of like what they do, we sort of like the way they approach things, and we're trying to at least uh, borrow some of the things that they do sure. and incorporate them into what we do? Yeah, another good question. So, you know, I mentioned a few brands at the beginning, uh, making it, you know, the best analogy I could and easy for everyone to understand as to, you know, the types of products and categories we, we participate in. Um, we pay attention to the competition, but not a ton of attention to the competition because a lot of people are, are paying attention to us. And we figure we should just, you know, stick our noses where, where they belong. Um, and so we spend a lot of time focusing on our brand. Um, you know, if I were to pick one company, and it's, it's, it's um, very difficult because there's not a lot to do what we do. You know, Brent hails from Martha Stewart Living. He was their vice president of uh, health and wellness for a while. So we, we take a lot of cues from Martha uh, from time to time. Um, uh, but I would say, you know, if you looked at our products, uh, sans the experiences, it's probably the honest company. But I think we're a more honest version of the honest company. It's how I like to describe it. <clears throat> okay, great. So recently, you guys uh, merged or acquired somebody. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit, sort of how you approached that, how that idea came up? Sure. So as I mentioned before, uh, the young gentleman who was part of my group at HSN, his family business was in uh, private label beauty manufacturing. And so they picked up the Beekman license in 2014. Uh, the brand grew under their stewardship largely on TV shopping, on Evine, which is the third largest TV shopping channel. Uh, we're moving to one of the other two, but that's semi-confidential at this point. Look for us at the end of July uh, on another network. Uh, but that platform was uh, tremendous in terms of the ability to storytell. One thing I learned from four years at HSN is there's no better platform to tell a story than on TV shopping. And we are a story brand. Um, and if you can't tell your story and it's not authentic and it doesn't necessarily evolve uh, and remain relevant, it's going to be tough to remain relevant going forward as a brand. Um, and so um, when I got to the company, again, the focus was on fundraising, uh, needed to get the house in order. We were also uh, in a uh, collaboration with a very large 
national retailer and had a um, had a diffusion line in that business. And the business was growing, uh, but uh, we weren't necessarily sure, uh, you know, how successful that would be or how long it would last. Um, and so while I had my hands full with that and with securing new space, as Bailey said, we're, you know, office space here is down uh, the street on 433 State Street. We're also moving to the harbor. So there was a lot going on uh, in terms of securing new space, and I was doing it all. Um, and I thought, well, gee, you know, we could go out and raise capital, still a very small company. I'm not sure what multiple we would get in terms of our valuation. Um, and I thought, well, gee, I know how I could grow revenue about, you know, six or seven times um, and get what I call multiple arbitrage, which is if I take someone else's revenue, uh, a licensee, for example, and licensees have a finite, you know, uh, license, it, it begins here and ends here, brands don't expire. So if I could take their revenues, put them on our revenues and take our multiple to revenue, it's how value, companies are valued. Um, that would be a huge windfall for all of us. Uh, and so we finally did that. Uh, we bought this family-run company, our licensee, uh, in March of this year. It took about 18 months to get that transaction done from the time that uh, I got the idea to the time it took to close. It's a family-owned and run company out of Orlando. Um, that company's a family-run company. Our company is also a family-run company because we look at all of our uh, staff and employees as our neighbors and our family. And so the cultures were easy uh, to uh, merge because they knew the brand. They had helped build it pretty much on air for you know two plus years from zero to you know a multi-million-dollar brand on air. Uh, and so it made perfect sense. Uh, but Getting the, getting the deal done uh, took a lot more time and, and a lot more effort. So, so ha having gone through that, what are some of the lessons learned from that experience of, of merging those two companies? Uh, you know, I spent my whole career merging companies um, for, other, for other folks. This time I was doing it, you know, as, as a principal as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of the lessons I learned as, as a banker, uh, you know, came true in this transaction. Uh, it's a lot about culture. Um, family companies are a different animal. They're not big public companies that, you know, in the M&A, you know, space today, you see what's going on in media and telecom and everything, uh, is booming. And um, it's very different when you're dealing with small, privately owned, independent family companies. Uh, it takes longer. Um, there's a lot more in the way of, of cultural issues to deal with even though the cultures were fairly similar. Um, and it's a change of lifestyle for a lot of people who were used to running companies on their own uh, and never really had partners before. That goes for Brett and Josh, and that goes for, uh, you know, the principles of the family-owned uh, company that we bought. Um, so, again, I was exposed to that and experienced it, and, you know, now experiencing it firsthand. Yeah, so that brings up an interesting point. You have these two family-run businesses that uh, they're used to doing it the way they want to do it, yeah. and now they're combined – and if that happens in the big, large corporate world, you know, they just say, okay, Bela, it's been nice knowing you. You're out of here. Yeah. Right. But in the family business, that's a little bit different. Right. So how do you sort of walk? How do you balance that out? How do you sort of negotiate or arrive at those various different roles that now individuals, those key individuals, the families will play in the new organization? So we found a way to keep everyone uh, in their executive 
and or managerial capacities pre-deal and post-deal. So anyone who was doing anything pre-deal is now doing it post-transaction as well um, in their executive roles. They now have more formalized titles. And uh, the one thing I made sure to do was put an executive committee together because, you know, our company was used to making decisions our way. Their company was used to making decisions their way. But now that we're all partners, uh, from time to time on material business decisions and question as to what's material, you know, we need to get together at, a, uh, at the table once a month and, you know, discuss what uh, material decisions we want to make. And uh, we take a vote. Now, is, is that company still located or that division of the company still located in, in Florida? Yeah. So that that division of the company is still located in Florida, in Orlando. Um, they are very well situated down there and they're very skilled at what they do, um, which is mainly distribution for TV shopping, which is a totally specialized distribution uh, function. Um, whereas uh, the bulk of... Uh, our revenues from Beekman proper still come from uh, our e-commerce site, which is all fulfilled out of Sharon Springs. Uh, we have a warehouse there. We're building a brand new warehouse there too, which hopefully will be ready sometime next year. Uh, we're more than doubling, almost tripling the square footage of that warehouse uh, there too. So we're committed to the community to grow the uh, fulfillment business out of there. And obviously we also fulfill our our Beekman Mercantile, our destination retail shop uh, out of there as well. So has the multiple locations, particularly Orlando's far away, has that brought additional challenges in sort of managing the business and running the business? Uh, yes and no. I mean, the integration, you know, nothing's ever really plug and play, although you can say it's plug and play. But if I've ever seen anything close to plug and play, this is it. Uh, just given, you know, the fact that the two businesses had worked so closely together over the years and built at least the beauty uh, component uh, of it, uh, which is our biggest component. So, yeah. Okay, great. So, again, you have a wide, diverse set of products. You're dealing with all sorts of, uh, you're sourcing those products in various different places, right? From from a farmer in Cuba who you have to work out a relationship with, right? Well, we don't source from farmers in Cuba. I'm saying we, 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 we did the trip in Cuba right. and everyone got a chance to roll up their sleeves and participate, uh, but we're not necessarily sourcing products. All of our product is pretty much sourced in the United States. Okay. But the point is you had, to, yeah. you had to develop a relationship with somebody in Cuba. You have sources of products that come from the United States. And it sounds like to me many of these are sort of small, also family-run businesses, right? You're, you're not buying stuff right. from Cargill. That's right. <laughs> right, right. That's right. So as you grow your business, how do you think about having consistency in supply and quality of product and, and these various different suppliers being able to provide that to you because that's, I imagine, pretty important to your customers that they know when they buy this, yeah. they have a certain... Yeah, so I would say each each category that we participate in has a scalable element and you know a small batch or, or, or local element that will never be scalable. Uh, but again, our brand was built on the uh, notion of doing business with our neighbors, with our local artisans. And so while we have beauty that's scalable, while we have food that's scalable, while we have home products that are scalable, we also make sure that we continuously build our um, stable of artisans, of which now there's well over 100. Um, and they're not necessarily just from the capital region, but I say from all over. But 
you know, uh, unlike Etsy, which some of you are familiar with, which is a marketplace where you can go and buy something online, um, we actually go to the trouble of telling our story, uh, telling our artisan stories, um, introducing them, putting experiences in front of our neighbors, uh, which we either do live uh, at the Mercantile when we do demonstrations. So you'll see uh, Jasmine making a pot um, or a plate. Um, one of our one of our top artisans, um, and so uh, we will do that. We'll introduce them. We'll bring their story to life, um, which gives our neighbors, uh, you know, more of a desire to want to want to learn more and to potentially purchase. Um, and so we try to bring that artisan to the community, um, and we will always do that. And as a result, that's part of the evergreen nature of our brand. Uh, because as we grow and as we build our stable of artisans, we'll continue to introduce more and more, so the brand will continue to evolve and remain relevant. So, sort of, what's your distribution channel for uh, that person making the pot? What I mean by that is, how do you share that experience of saying, "Here's here's this person making this pot"? Is that a is that a digital distribution, or is it just the people who are in the room get to experience? No, that? It's, it's it's both. It, it's I mean. As I said, we're a very big content and media company, and we're in front of our neighbors every day. Um, we not only are posting uh, live on uh, Facebook and Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, etc., cetera, uh, but um, again, the boys make personal appearances uh, across the country, um, both on their own and with our partners. They're introducing artisans and others at these events. Uh, we also have a quarterly uh, almanac, which is sort of a lifestyle magazine, if you will. Almost no ads, zero, uh, all content. Uh, there might be the occasional, uh, you know, co uh, collaboration ad we would give to one of our partners. Uh, and it's not about buying product. It's about living a certain lifestyle. It's about cultivating a better life. Um, and occasionally that might lead to a product suggestion, but we're not always necessarily suggesting our products. We're suggesting the best of the best. Um, and a lot of unique things. And so sometimes, I mean, in our, I think in our holiday edition last year, we had a whole section on New York makers, um, which is, um, you know, an artisan community out of, uh, out of New York, uh, promoting their products, which, you know, we didn't get any, um, uh, revenue out of. But, uh, again, it's about promoting, uh, artisans and, and cultivating a better life. It's not just about Beekman products. Excellent. Excellent. So as you think about Beekman 1802, what's sort of next? What's on the two to three year horizon for you folks? Well, uh, we're just keep doing what we're doing um, in all the categories. We're doing it. We're going to build out and expand. Uh, we're going to build our company. Our, our scarcest resource has always been people. Um, capital now we have with this transaction. We were lucky enough not to have to do a capital raise. Capital came with the transaction. Um, and so we now have access to low cost capital, um, which we're using to reinvest in the business. Um, and so we'll continue to build um, our executive team and uh, mid-management team here in Schenectady. Um, as I may have mentioned earlier, we're moving from State Street um, over to the harbor um, to what will be, you know, 10, 11,000 square feet um, with our uh, friend and neighbor, the Gillespie Group. Um, and so uh, we'll continue to do that, but we want to double, triple, and quadruple the brand, you know, in the next, call it three to five years, which we think we'll be able to do. And this move from Evine to the other home shopping channel will help us do that. Excellent. 
So in, in a second, I was going to open up the floor to some questions from the audience, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, but before I did that, uh, I, I did want to ask you, what questions should I have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> yeah. Um, you did a good job. You've asked me everything. <laughs> but uh, No, I'm, I'm happy to take questions. I don't know how much time we have left. Okay. We have about 10 minutes, I think, okay. for, for questions. So, Nicole, you can go first. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, making an appearance. Um, I'm interested to rewind back to when <clears throat> Josh and Brent um, and you started courting each other and what the conversation sort of looked like. Because I couldn't imagine them coming over and be like, hey, which we kind of need capital to continue for the business. Um, when does that sort of happen? Because there's a changing of the guard a little bit, I would think, that happens structurally because they're so invested in the brand to sort of hand the reins over if something's. That's a good question. Um, and these things evolve, right? Um, they needed help. I said, I think I can help you. Uh, but at the time, as I mentioned, I was looking at other opportunities myself. And so I said, look, you guys are good, really good guys. You have a really interesting, unique thing here. I think I can help you. Uh, and by the way, you know, I'll help prepare this company for financing and I'll raise the financing. Uh, but in the interim, if I find something else, I'll make sure you're in good hands. Right. And someone, you know, whom I trust or a company whom I trust will help you raise the funds. That's sort of how it started. And then from there, it took on a life of its own. When I was a consultant, I was working mostly from home in New York City, uh, but realized given what I needed largely, which was the attention and focus of some of the staff and data, uh, it wasn't as easy to come by unless I was on site. Uh, and so the more I was on site, the more productive I was, the more things got done. Um, as I said, you know, there were 12 people, you know, half of whom were part-time, half of whom had emails. Um, so one of the things, I, I mean, I, one of the things I first did when I got here was to put together an organizational chart, which they never had because I didn't know what the organization looked like. And it was the first organization chart I had to do in color because the color yellow showed up 10 times because this person was wearing 10 hats, right? And so I said, okay, you know, uh, yellow, red, blue, we got to consolidate this thing and formalize. Um, and so I think from there, uh, you know, when I talked about how we would get uh, from current state to the state of financing in the best possible case, right? Because you always want to approach the market with leverage, um, you know, and, and tell a good story. Uh, it just it just evolved from there. And, you know, we developed trust from one another early on. There was uh, when, when I got here, there the business was being run uh, by uh uh, a young girl out of New York City, 26 years old. She worked in an advertising agency, probably had a couple of years of work experience under her belt. And Josh brought her on board. And she was, you know, sort of the unofficial, uh, you know, chief operating officer. Um, and probably about a month or so, month or two after I signed on as CEO, she decided she was going to go leave uh, and, and move in with her boyfriend, you know, uh, in another state and run his business. Okay. So again, that things like that brought us close together as well, uh, and so you know it just evolved from there. Can you elaborate a little bit on the move to the harbor? Is it retail space? Or? No, it's all executive office space. Um, we have one retail location uh, for now, and the goal is slowly but surely, very methodically, to roll out other retail locations uh, across uh, you know the country where our neighbors reside. But um, you know we went from about 450 square feet of operating space in the old mercantile store in Sharon Springs, you know, and there were a lot of shelves in there. It was almost like Grand Central Station with people running into each other. Um, we had a 1,350 square foot dark basement, 
which was our, you know, uh, storage and fulfillment facility. And only one guy knew where everything was. It was kind of dark down there. So, um, you know, that's what I walked into. Um, and so one of the first things that Brent and Josh said was, look, if we're going to survive another year, we need to get real office space. And we, and more importantly, we need to get real warehouse space. So we found an opera, we found a location down the road in Sharon Springs, which was great. We kept the staff there. So we went from 450 square feet with 1350 of dark basement to over 4,000 of um, warehouse space. And that was with the help of, uh, you know, the IDA in Schoharie County. Incidentally, we have a tremendous amount of help uh, from the start of New York program here and Ray Gillen and the Schenectady Multiplex who were instrumental in getting us down here. So that was um, another uh, aspect of it. So when I got the warehouse locked away, I said, okay, we need some office space. Uh, one of the first investments I ever looked at when I was at HSN running investments in M&A was a company called Quirky. We didn't invest, thankfully, but we took their space um, <laughs> at 433 State Street. I said, oh, yeah, I remember that company. Yeah, we'll take that space. So um, ultimately, we took a couple thousand square feet uh, in, in what is now, not ECIC anymore, but it's uh, Urban Coworks. Um, uh, which Jeff Goronkin runs. Uh, and so we've outgrown that space about, you know, four or five times already. Um, and so slowly but surely, um, um, we found our way with Gillespie, uh, to the harbor. And so hopefully, um, before the end of the year, we'll, we'll be in there. So one of the things you just said spurred another question in my brain. From what I heard you talk about your career, a lot of it was corporate life. Right, you're working for larger corporations, New York City, and then you go to a farmhouse with a dark basement up in Sharon Springs. So, like, talk about sort of the mindset, right? So, what what drives somebody to take that step off the curb, right? To, to yeah. say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this life behind, right? That I know I've I've done for 15, 20 yeah. years, and I'm gonna go to this like totally different universe, right? Yeah. So just, I, I'm just trying to explore what goes on between your ears when you're thinking about something like yeah, that. Yeah, I wish I could explain that. Um, <laughs> so I spent uh, probably 15, uh, uh, no, actually, sorry about, yeah, about 18 years on Wall Street, uh, probably eight years too long. And when you were doing something so long, you think, I'm a banker now, what else could I ever do? Uh, well, I went to work for a client, I went in-house. But by the way, when I was on Wall Street, I worked for some of the biggest firms, which would be Citigroup and Merrill Lynch, to some of the smallest firms. I mean, you know, um, Merrill Lynch, City, hundreds of thousands of people around the world. I also worked for a company called Wasserstein Perella and a company called Peter J. Solomon, uh, which, you know, Peter J. Solomon was 25 people when I joined. So I had experience working in very small companies and very big companies. Uh, but like I said, I spent a lot of years on Wall Street, um, finally found an opportunity to go work for a former client, which was HSN Inc. That was down in Florida. Uh, and St. Petersburg, Florida is a far cry from Wall Street, you know, where everything has to be done yesterday and it has to be done 100% accurate. Um, and so, you know, dulling my senses in Florida for four years helped. Um, because things take a long time to get done down there. It's very hot. Um, and so the good news was it chilled me out. Um, and so having had those four years under my belt before I came back to the city and to Sharon Springs, 
um, you know, helped a lot. And so I was able to better grasp. But I think it's also one of the most important things I found, one of the most important, and not a lot of people talk about it. It's not necessarily the topic of a lot of management books, but it's adaptability, right? If you can adapt to your surroundings uh, very well, no matter what they are, um, that's a good quality to have. So, you know, I spent, um, as I said, many, many years on Wall Street. I did a couple of years in Japan before business school uh, in Tokyo um, when I was 24 years old. Um, you know, and I've always sort of uh, been able to adapt. Um, and yes, it's a far cry from Wall Street. It's even a far cry from Florida. Uh, but um, adaptability and the ability to sort of, uh, you know, uh, inhale and take in one's surroundings, listen and learn is very important. For the first year um, that I was, let's say, consultant CEO, all I did pretty much was listen. Uh, and I tried to inhale uh, the brand, the company, who's doing what. Second year, uh, I focused a lot on, and of course, you know, uh, making sure that we had the right, you know, operational and physical infrastructure, slowly but surely. The second year, uh, really started focusing on, uh, you know, more of the product categories, the internal functions, helping people do their jobs better. Because, you know, a lot of staff uh, had never worked for big companies. A lot of staff uh, had never, um, you know, had educations past high school. Um, and they were doing these jobs for the first time. And so you have to have a lot of patience and you have to be able to listen and learn and then help them do their jobs better. So that was sort of year two. Uh, and into year three, it was, you know, more trying to get this transaction done and put us on stronger footing. Um, and so, you know, I would say adaptability, listening and learning, and then, uh, you know, putting yourself to work based on what you've, uh, what you've learned is, is sort of the way I would, I, I would go about it and recommend. Excellent. I guess if you're not adaptable, you're a dinosaur. And yeah. we all know what happened to them. Maybe time for one more question. I have a question, actually. How do you resolve your differences? Um, so, you know, there was 12 guys when you came on, and now you have two companies and you're merging with this executive committee, and you have the final say. You have disagreements, and does everybody have to agree in that room? There's absolutely no disagreements whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> None. Um, no. Uh, you know, we were a 12-person company when I started. We're now over 100. Right. We were 20 plus, call it 20, 25 people uh, before the acquisition. We brought on roughly 60 from Orlando. Some have moved up here in the executive capacity because we need them close to the company um, and the daily running of the business. Um, and then we ended up hiring another 20 plus people in both locations. Uh, but uh, a lot of people have a lot of ideas. Um, and Brett and Josh are creative visionaries. Um, and, you know, there's no shortage of ideas. We are idea factory. But we have to determine, you know, based on things like, uh, you know, value proposition for projects, products, opportunities, uh, you know, what stacks up. But there's always going to be room for passion projects and for things that, you know, don't necessarily have what we would measure as high ROI. Um, so, yeah, there's a formal process. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of informality, too. One more? One more question from the audience. Yes, in the back. So I work with um, various startup companies on the legal side. Um, as I become intimately familiar with their business model or lack thereof, I find it really tough in convincing them to recognize that they need help. Mm. It's the kind of help that you came on as a consultant. 
you know how the boys recognized that they needed someone like you? So there's really two questions here. So I've done legal agreements my entire career. And when I got there, I looked at some of the legal agreements that they had signed um, on the basis of recommendations from others and others they've trusted. Um, some of them I had to rip up. Some of them I had to renegotiate. Um, and I had to make sure that uh, from a standpoint of each of our relationships that we were protected that Brent and Josh were protected, the company was protected, um, and that we weren't necessarily going to get ourselves a situation uh, into a situation where, uh, you know, from whatever potential liabilities or lack of indemnification that we, you know, ha you know had that uh, we weren't going to necessarily stifle the business. I still look at every single legal agreement today. You know, the boys say very visionary, very business oriented, but when it comes down to the fine print, um, you know, uh, we've got to, you know, you've really got to focus on that. And um, again, you know, entrepreneurs tend to, you know, put a lot of trust in people, a lot of stock uh, in people. And, you know, they sign on the dotted line. It's, uh, I've seen it a lot. And, um, you know, you have to get folks who are disciplined in there. In fact, I, I was basically in-house counsel, too, when I joined, um, having done, uh, you know, transactions my entire career. Uh, we now have about three sets of lawyers. Uh, we, we had a patent attorney. At one point when I got there, who, who was great, who was, you know, and the boys were smart enough to realize early on that we needed to, um, you know, uh, you know, copyright, patent, the brand, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we always we were always square there. But uh, in terms of other business dealings, we needed real counsel. And we finally got it. Thank you very much. Well, Bela, that was a fascinating interview. And uh, again, Apologies to listeners that there was a little more noise since that was a recording of a live session, but a lot there. What were your thoughts in terms of what was especially interesting or surprising to you? So I thought one of the interesting points that Mitch brought up is this notion of joining an existing company as the CEO, where the founders are clearly and continue to be the face of the business. So Mitch as CEO needs to sort of be a low profile CEO. And I think the challenge is there and, you know, he has to park his ego at the, at the front door, so to speak, uh, and understand what the strengths are of the founders and understand what his, his, his strengths are and use those in an appropriate way to help move the company forward. And I thought the way that he spoke about, you know, the founders actually set the vision for the business They've been doing that since day one. And Mitch is really the person who executes on that and delivers on that vision and makes that vision a reality. So I thought those were two really key things that struck out at me. I liked how Mitch talked about execution as nine-tenths of strategy and the path is important, but then execute relentlessly. And that's really relevant, I think, as maybe some of our listeners are thinking about a different career path or making a change. Yep, find that path, but then it's really up to you to to execute the things that you need to do to be successful. Um, and uh, one of the joys of entrepreneurship is figuring out who the right team is, right? And who you have on your side to, to help you figure that out. That, yeah, there needs to be a visionary, but there needs to be an execution person also. And that's your network. That's your friends and your family and your colleagues. And if you are fortunate enough to be able to hire people, that's who you bring onto your team. So this was this was interesting. You know, uh, and, and it's this, this strategy of the founders are the face of the company 
and you bring in a really good operating person is not unusual. We see it all the time. Look at Facebook, right? Zuckerberg is the face of the company. He's the one uh, that you always see on TV or the press. But Sheryl Sandberg was brought in pretty early in the process because she has this great skill of building and growing the operating aspects of the business. So what they've done here at Beekman 1802 is not unusual. It's a very proven model, but it's one that oftentimes, because of various different reasons, you have to have the right ego mix of individuals involved for it to actually be a success. Have you seen the opposite, Bela, where, okay, founders start up the VC or the the uh, investors say, hey, we need you to bring in a seasoned veteran with operational experience. They bring in somebody like Mitch, maybe who's a Wall Street person or a Fortune 500 person, and they can't make that transition or they can't let go of the ego. Have you seen that? Yes. Without mentioning any names? Yes. And I think I think that happens at least 50% of the time, quite honestly. I think it's the same thing that happens in, in, in a lot of mergers when one company acquires another company. And it's how the leadership between those two organizations melds together. The same thing is true when a company brings in a, a hired CEO because the VCs forced them to, and there's not a clear understanding and definition and melting of the minds as to what the various different roles will be. And having that clearly defined before the person is brought in and not after the person is brought in because the expectations need to be set during the process, the selection process, and the expectations are pretty set in concrete by the time that person shows up at the front door the first day for work. Yeah, this idea of role clarity, that's the technical term the social scientists use for it, is really important. And it's something I think that our listeners can take away with them on a, a fairly regular basis. If you're applying for a job, if you're hiring somebody, if you're building a team inside a workplace, in a, in a club or social setting, this idea of what exactly is the expected role of this person. You know, we oftentimes see it in terms of a job description, but role is something somewhat different than job, right? Job are the tasks maybe you're going to do. Role is this the position you're going to play almost in a psychological kind of way in terms of I'm not going to be I'm going to be in the background or I'm going to be the the person out front. So it's something to talk about. What do you want my role to be? It's a great question to ask in a job interview. It's a great question to say uh, in a job interview, what do you want to a candidate? What do you want your role to be? What do you envision as your ideal role? So this idea of what your role is and, and making it clear um, is kind of a life skill, I think, in a lot of ways, um, not just for startups and CEOs, but in every form, even in relationships, right, between partners, right, at home. Who, who's going to play what role? And and how does that work? Does it change over time? Because it does a lot of times. So these are, these are I think, interesting questions of, of social science. I agreed, agreed. You know, one of the other things I thought that was interesting is when I first went to the Beekman 1802 website, and if you search on Beekman 1802, uh, you'll find it, and we'll have it in the in the show notes for sure. It amazed me at the large number of products that they have, which was interesting to me because from my former VC roots, we always talk about focus, and we always talk about focusing in on one product and really mastering it or one service and being really clear about that. And uh, these guys really took sort of a different approach. So it just goes to show you that there's many pathways and roads to success. When your heart is set on a, a way of doing something, uh, if the market responds, then keep going 
don't necessarily always abide by what's written in books or what what the sage advice is of people because sometimes it's the new ways that are where the fun is and where where we make progress yeah and disruption happens at the edges right even though focus is best for most startups or most brands, there's room uh, for a different approach. And in this case, you have a very clear identity. Mitch really could clearly state what the identity of the company is. Um, and the company does it in its website. And yeah, it's fine uh, sometimes to have multiple products in, in multiple industries, as long as you have a clear identity and you can make it work. And there's a connection. You can talk about the value proposition, why you should buy from this company versus uh, somebody else. And they have a nice value proposition. They make a nice statement of why, you know, this is a premium product and, and why you should spend a few extra dollars for one of their products. It's a, it's a great story. Um, and, and they tell it well. So yeah, I thought it's great. And it does. It flies against every strategy textbook that's out there, but it's not wrong. It's, it's absolutely right for this company in this situation. And, you know, good for Mitch to, to, to be able to learn, right, from the founders. That Again, it's another example, I think, of humility, right, and being humble and, and being able to see things a different way and being able to, to be convinced that maybe there's another way to do things. Yeah, and I think this, this just kind of riffing on that a little bit more, I, I think this really speaks to, you know, when I, at first blush, if you look at this, you know, Mitch had a career on Wall Street, right? So he's a high-powered, big-gun guy from Wall Street coming to upstate New York to, into this little homespun-style business. And at first blush, you would say, oh my gosh, that's going to go badly. But I really give credit to Mitch and sort of his personality and understanding the value that the founders bring to the business and respecting that value and that vision that the founders have set and figuring out a way for them to work together for the benefit of the vision and the accomplishment of that vision. And I think that's, uh, that's something that is, is probably happens less than one would hope that there is this good sort of marriage, if you will, of the minds and the meeting of the minds that allows this to be successful and that egos don't get in the way. Yeah, in Mitch's own words, it's adaptability. It's the importance of patience, listening, and learning. I think we're three of his keys. Uh, and I think that's a great way to wrap up today's today's episode. It's uh, It was a pleasure listening to Mitch talk about his experience with Beekman 1802. Uh, and I think there's a lot of great takeaways for our listeners. So thanks, Pela, to you. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks again to Clarkson University and the University of Applied Sciences uh, in Münster, Germany, for letting us do this. As, uh, we look forward to your feedback. Uh, you can, what did we say? leave a positive review on iTunes, or you can certainly send us an email at bella.and.mike at gmail.com. And we are very happy to get your questions, your complaints, compliments, suggest other people that we might want to interview for this. These are all great things to do. So we look forward, I look forward to next time. I hope everybody else does too. Bella, thanks a million. Any last thoughts? Uh, nope. All good, Mike. Have a great week. All right. Over and out. <laughs>